Hello, welcome to episode 37 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 14th of May, 2018. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. How's it going? Will. Hello. And Graham. Good evening. So, Will, before we get into the news, I hear that you are looking to include GS Connect in the next version of Ubuntu. Hmm, I wonder where you got that idea from. I listen to the people. <laughs> yes, we talked about it last show, and now it's uh, going to be a thing, so that's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Almost like you listen to the community. Almost. Um, all right, well, let's get on with the news. Uh, the first news is that Fedora 28 has been released, and it's not a massively exciting release on the desktop, the workstation version. It's new GNOME. Um, the big thing for me is the fact that it's really easy to install some proprietary applications now, which was just never the case in Fedora. There were ways to do it, but it was always a bit of a ball ache, whereas now you open the software center and there's just one button uh, do you want to enable non-free software? You say yes, and then you can install Chrome, you can install Steam, and you can install uh, NVIDIA drivers, which is um, kind of more what we're used to from Ubuntu. Uh, it's very unusual for Fedora to do this, but I welcome it. I think that they've made it so that you don't have to do it, but if you want to, it's easy. Yeah, it seems to be quite a, a philosophical shift in their attitude because um, they always used to take pride in doing precisely not that. Does it mean that we're any more likely to use it? Will, you're excused from this, obviously. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I know that you two don't like GNOME, your KDE. Hey, that, that's not true. I like I like GNOME. And I know there was some uh, pushback from the conversation that we had the last episode um, about GNOME, which I guess you may address later on, but... I like GNOME and also the GNOME developers in particular and the team that, like, its governance, that's some of the nicest, most brilliant, passionate people I've met in open source. So just because I choose to use a different desktop doesn't necessarily reflect anything on the GNOME desktop. Okay, fair enough. But d does this mean, you know, this more pragmatic approach for them, does it mean that any of us are more likely to use it? I'm going to be more inclined to use it because... I don't know anyone who doesn't actually install those kind of third-party proprietary or those third-party packages, you know, apart from the really committed open source. Well, and they wouldn't even call themselves open source enthusiasts. Um, I think everybody else is going to install, maybe not Chrome, but certainly the NVIDIA graphics, if you've got an NVIDIA graphics card. Well, I do have an NVIDIA graphics card in my desktop machine, but it's really old and shit. And Nuvo is perfectly good because I don't play any games or anything. So it wouldn't tempt me. I, I will not run any proprietary software that I don't sort of need to. Yeah. But I suppose if you do want to play Steam games and stuff, then you absolutely have to do this anyway, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And is it going to make an exception over kind of stuff like MP3 codecs? Well, MP3 codecs are, in theory, out of patent now anyway. So... Um... Perhaps a bad example, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the rest of the the codex are there in the you know restricted side of things. It sounds like a good pragmatic move. Yeah, I agree. And what struck me about it, um, having recently looked at Ubuntu, is how just upstream GNOME Fedora is. I mean, it's kind of always been like that, but it it does differentiate itself against something like Ubuntu because it is just so straight up, which. I suppose it's a good and a bad thing at the same time, depending on your outlook of it. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I think for a lot of us, Red Hat was one of the first distributions we used. Um, it, it needed to be pure because it needed to work on so many different architectures and it kind of created its initial momentum before, um, before any of the Fedora days through doing precisely that. And I think it's stayed quite true to that principle. Um, but, you know, times are changing, and I think these, this this pragmatism is is reflecting those changing times and what people need and expect from a distribution. And there's a fair bit of other stuff going on apart from the workstation version, the desktop. On the server now, they've got modularity, which means you can sort of keep versions of certain packages and have the operating system upgrade and you know it doesn't break your applications necessarily, which somewhat addresses the lack of support, doesn't it? Um, it? Because Fedora, that's basically the reason I don't use it on the desktop is because you only get sort of nine months-ish of support, whereas with Ubuntu, you get three years. 
And realistically, you're getting a bit more than that anyway, because it's only a few bits of it that are only three years, and most of it's most of the underlying stuff is five years. Not that you would probably need five years, but sort of nine, ten months, even a year, it, it feels a little bit frequent to be updating stuff, especially a server. But if you can seamlessly update the underlying OS and then keep certain things behind, that seems like a, a fairly sensible approach to me. And also, of course, you've got the Atomic uh, and Atomic Workstation, which they've renamed to Silverblue. Um, that's kind of old, new, shiny technologies that uh, are a bit scary to me, to be honest. The only thing that I'd be find a bit strange would be for the server-based stuff would be the fact that a lot of the hardware manufacturers might not keep up with that rate of change. Um, the likes of HP for RAID cards, controllers, and all that type of stuff. I'd be dubious as to whether they would actually keep up because you might not necessarily, while you might have a driver, you might not necessarily have all the firmware stuff getting patched as quickly as that. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how well that handles. But if it did, it would be very interesting that you have a core that updates quickly at a rapid rate and then all the dependency-based stuff for the likes of WordPress and all those actually is stable enough. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Well, there's been some pretty interesting announcements from Red Hat over the last couple of weeks. They had their summit last week, and we were wondering what was going to go on with CoreOS after they bought it, and they're going to rebrand it as Red Hat CoreOS. But um, interestingly that they have talked about having an upstream version like Fedora is to RHEL, so we might get a community version of it as well. But I mean, I talked about this at the weekend with Chris, and this is much more his domain. I don't know, this is getting into sort of proper hybrid cloud stuff and just stuff that's beyond my pay grade, to be honest. I mean, Phelan, do you ever deal with um, this level of sort of containerization and everything? No, because a lot of the stuff that I deal with would be a lot of multiple sites and they'd have a small number at each site. So a lot of this type of stuff would be the fact that you'd need, you know, 50 upward servers in one location. So you like the likes of uh, a, a web server farm or whatever, or well, maybe not even that many, but it'd be a large bulk job whereas a lot of the places i'd have to do work you'd need a small number at many many sites so that was where you'd have to have something like uh salt stack where you'd have to control it across multiple locations as opposed to a lot of stuff in one location for a lot of people coming in so it's a kind of a different sort of way i'd have to do stuff so yeah no i've never had to do the many big swarms of uh, devices in one place so yeah, <laughs> break all your servers at once. It's a bit unfortunate for poor old Docker because about the one thing that they were trying to have going for themselves was that they'd have a, you know, they'd be the one-stop shop for the management of Docker. And it looks like this is kind of become essentially the thing, you know, because it's Kubernetes and Key are looking like the, the management platform. And if you've got a big backer like Red Hat behind it, you've got a really strong player and, you know, what really does Docker have going for it right now? You know, they made a great system and it's all open and kind of what's there left? You know, everybody's kind of using their technology, but as a as a shell of a company, they're kind of what have they got going for themselves? You know, well, it's particularly interesting as Red Hat have always managed to monetize open source um, and so many other people have struggled. And so your argument here is that Docker are going to struggle to actually make any money off it. They've built this amazing thing that everyone's using, but to actually monetize it is much more difficult than making the thing in the first place. Yeah, well, they already were, and now whatever hope they had, I think, has very much gone. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> all right, well, let's move on and talk about Richard Stallman again. We have, um, well, I have dissed him quite a lot, thrown shade upon him, I think the youngsters say. Uh <laughs> And this time it's about glibc. So in the manual for glibc, uh, there's a, a very old joke that he put in um, about uh, the abort function. And it was some really shitty joke about censorship of abortion. And it's, it's an abortion joke. Everyone loves one of those, eh? Um, Bill Hicks once said, let's lighten things up and talk about abortion. So the consensus uh, among the uh, 
the developers was that they wanted to get rid of this. And then Stallman just basically said, fuck you. It's my joke. It's staying in. And then, then mm. uh, the, it's just erupted into this. Well, it's actually quite a uh, calm discussion, relatively speaking, on the mailing list. I've read a f- bit of it. Um, but the bottom line is it, that Stallman is being a dictator about it. And it just goes to show that... Um, you know, he might have sort of sunk into the background when it comes to coding and everything, or programming, as he would say. He is still there, and he is still ruling with an iron fist when it comes to the GNU stuff. Yeah, it's very, very interesting, his attitude towards this, and that basically he pulled rank. I can't remember the exact words he used, but he said, even though I've kind of been quiet in uh, Glibc development over the last few years, it doesn't mean that I don't still take ownership over it. And mm. this is one of those moments where I'm going to do exactly that. And I want to have the joke reinstated. Just seems like such a weird thing to pull rank over. You know, this very weak, poor quality, not funny joke. And just like to choose that to go... And pull your weight over just seems like a really weird decision. Yeah, I completely agree. Is it not just about asserting dominance that if you let one thing go, then you've lost control of it? Quite possibly, but why choose this particular issue to do that about? It it just defies logic in my (laughs) mind. Also, another thing that he wrote kind of gives people permission to uh, make their own contributions and change things as they see fit. (laughs) You know, so it's kind of the rule of maybe people should consider forking it. But that never helps anyone, does it? A fork should always be the last resort, surely. No, exactly. But what I mean is that the GPL in in many ways kind of facilitates um, a force of opinion to to, to change things. Um, You know, in some ways, that's how open source software works. And I think this is one of those examples. From what I can see, the overwhelming opinion is that the joke should be dropped and we shouldn't really have jokes in code and important projects Mm. like this. Yep. Especially when it involves Richard Storman's sense of humour. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a real stretch, though, isn't it? Like, I'd be worried, though, that anybody who's looking through this code is just not not going to get enough work done laughing so much <laughs> at the, the utter hilarity of it. They'll just be so so unable to continue their daily work laughing so heartily as they will when they see it. When I saw it first time, I was still wondering where the joke was. Mm, I still yeah. am. It's fucking atrocious. He's a fucking bearded <laughs> lunatic. He really is a fucking moron. <sighs> well, that's the thing. He's like um, the the dumbest smart person you've ever met or whatever. You know, like he is clearly a genius, but then he just does some really dumb shit at the same time. Have any of you lot ever actually had to interact with him before? Yeah, I have. And how did that go? It was exactly the same... <laughs> Exactly the same experience that you had, Joe. Although I do, I do respect him, as I think I mentioned before. Um, and part part of the reason why I think his you know opinions are still relevant is the fact that he's unwilling to compromise. And part of that is in his dealings with other people. Yeah. Have you seen the video that he did with Swapnil? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, he makes some really great points in that. Yeah. And some of the stuff that he says is so relevant and. He, long before Snowden or whatever, he was saying, like, you know, making all these points. Mm. And he wrote that article for The Guardian that was quite relevant. But then he just goes and does dumb shit like this and, you know, says things about paedophilia being all right and stuff. And you just think, fuck's sake, man. Like, uh, but one interesting thing in that video was um, when Swapnil asked him, who's going to replace you when you snuff it? And he said, well, there's no one no one worthy to take my place, which was very fucking arrogant of him. Yeah, but I mean, he's human. And, you know, some of the traits that have made him such a keen thinker in many of the things that have come to pass are, are the same kind of traits that make him perhaps difficult to deal with and make him unable to see whether a joke should be dropped or, or whether somebody's going to be able to succeed him. I think it's all part and parcel of him being the same person. I don't want to defend him in this situation but you know that's the Richard Stallman we've known for some time now I take the point that he is still quite respected despite some of the weird shit that he's done he has done a lot of good and started the whole free software movement and all the rest of it but I don't know when he does stuff like this it just makes you you know it's like when Steve Jobs died he basically said he was glad and stuff I mean that's that's potentially quite a bad misquote but he said you know he he spoke ill of the dead put it that way rather than just saying i'd rather not really comment on that which is you know 
what he could have done. He's, he's, you know, he just keeps doing these things. I don't know. Anyway, let's not talk about that too much more. Um, so, uh, 32 bit Linux is moribund. It seems because now Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu Budgie are dropping 32 bit following hot on the heels of pretty much all the other major distros. I remember Arch last year, now Ubuntu, the main version, there's not a 32 bit installer, now, I don't know if you guys have been following the discussion on the mailing list about all the flavors dropping 32-bit. You've got the potential to drop just the installation images, as Ubuntu proper have done. And then there's the talk of completely dropping the 32-bit archive, which seems very drastic to me. So, I mean, Will, you presumably must have been following this. Yeah, uh, I think what it boils down to is if only we had some data that could back this up and we could get a, a reading <laughs> on how many people have got 32-bit only hardware. Um, so, yeah, we should see that coming out fairly soon. We're working on the back end now. Um, so, yeah, we'll have some we'll have some evidence to, to point to it. And, uh, you know, if it turns out that 1% of the users have got 32-bit hardware, then it seems like a, a lot of work for a very low number of users. But I don't know. We don't have that data to hand yet. Um, once we do have it, I think we'll be able to make a much more informed choice. I do wonder how many people are running 32-bit versions on 64-bit capable hardware. Mm. I suppose that's what we're going to find out. Yeah, we should be able to look at the CPU details, uh, find out if it's 64-bit capable, and then see if they're installing a 32-bit OS. Um, and if that is the case, then perhaps we need to put something in the installer to say you know, you're installing the wrong version, as it were. Will, are you able to say at all whether many people have been able to opt in to sharing their data, their specs? I had a quick look at the data. So I've got uh, read-only access to that database now. Uh, it's it's like raw SQL that I have to type in there, and uh, I'm still getting to grips with it. Are you sure it's read-only? <laughs> I've made very sure it's read-only. tables. Uh, so, yes, I, I, can t- I can say that... Um, when I last checked, I can say that the numbers looked like about 60% of people were opting in. Um, now, that's not to say that of the, the 60% that every single one of those entries is a valid entry and isn't just garbage that people have been posting to the uh, URL. Um, but we'll find out in, in due course. So probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so, I should have some some proper numbers. That sounds really good. That is interesting. So you know whether people are not submitting it then? Yeah, so we took a decision at the start uh, to design it such that if you don't want to share your details, we know that you don't want to share your details. Um, And that was quite controversial. But the reason is we want to know if people care enough about submitting their, their data um, if we if we were seeing uh, a 1% opt-in, you know, 10%, I don't know, whatever, a low number of uh, opt-ins, then obviously people are not interested in doing this. And so we should rethink our, our plans. Um, but so far, it looks like people are happy to share this information, which is really good. And so what data do you collect about that? Is it just someone installed Ubuntu somewhere in the world at some point? Or do I, do you, I presume you don't have like IPs or anything like that then? No, there's no IP addresses logged, not even in the logs of the server, in the Apache logs, no IP addresses are not logged. Um, it sends a, a JSON blob which says opt-out equals true or opt-in equals false, whichever way around it. I can't be uh, 100% certain now. But yeah, it just sends like a, a, a status message to say a user has chosen not to send their data. Okay, well, that's fairly anonymous then. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I mean, dropping installation images is one thing and seems fairly sensible. But there are more complications, aren't they? If you drop the 32-bit archive, because there's certain stuff like Steam, I'm led to believe, still uses some 32 bits and wine, uh, 32-bit stuff. So it's it's a lot more complicated than just, oh, well, no one needs it. Let's stop doing it. Yeah, I, th- I think, you, you know, yes, Steam definitely use quite a lot of 32-bit libraries. There have been people banging on to them about changing that for a while, and it hasn't happened as far as I know. Um, but yeah, more generally, though, removing all 32-bit software from the archives seems like a, a drastic step. There are still lots of machines out there which are 32-bit, like um, the uh, Atom-based machines. Um, I've got probably two or three of those in my house running as uh, TV front ends for Myth TV. Um, I don't have to update those, but it's nice to, to have that option out there. Um, without 32-bit, I'd be stuffed. So I don't know. I, I can see that there is 
a significant market for 32-bit, whether or not it's worth the effort that all the flavours and the distros have got to put in to keep that going remains to be seen. But it does feel like 2018 is kind of the the year that 32-bit will die. Um, yet there'll always be distros that will support it, you would have thought, uh, or at least for another five or ten years. But it looks like all the major ones are just not really that interested anymore. Yeah, I think it's return on investment at this point. Um, how much effort you put in for supporting a small number of users. Um, you look at things like Raspberry Pi. There are people who are building uh, various distros for Raspberry Pi on Raspberry Pis. So it would still be possible for somebody to fire up a load of 32-bit machines and compile the software and build something for those people. Um, uh, yeah, the question is, is it worth the effort? Um, all right, well, huge controversy about uh, the Snap Store and malware that was in it for a couple of hours. And it's it definitely proves that snaps are not the way forward and malware in Ubuntu. And uh, I don't know, it, it's a storm in a teacup, but it still doesn't look good for snaps as a thing. Um, I know that's not really your area, Will, but like you, it is part of the desktop. You can install snaps from the the GUI, I think, can't you, on the desktop? So it kind of affects you. Is, is this? Do you consider this an embarrassment? Uh, I think it's unfortunate. I don't think it's an embarrassment. I, the fact that it got turned around in a few hours and and was, you know was pulled out again um, shows that you know people care about this stuff. Um, the first I heard about it was uh, from a message from from someone on my team posting to our uh, internal Telegram chat saying, "Oh God, have you seen this?" Um, and then you know people were responding on a Sunday and people were pitching in and everybody really cared about it. So. As a corporate entity, we take personal responsibility for this and people were there and on the ball at weekends ready to respond and ready to fix this. The question about, you know, is our snaps fundamentally broken? Well, that's just, yeah, no, they're not. That's just not a problem. Um, this could have happened as a deb. It could have happened as a curl script on a web page that said, oh, if you want to install this game, just, you know, pop, copy this to your terminal and paste it. Um, it could have happened via any any number of ways. The fact that it came via a snap is just a, a, a you know part of the story. I don't think that um, that it reflects badly on snaps, and I think that the speed at which the team turned it around is um, should give people a bit of confidence about this. Uh, right. Well, uh, this might get a bit awkward then. Now <laughs> you said it could happen with a deb. Now, obviously, any deb that you download and give uh, root privileges to install. You know, for some random web page or even a PPA that you add, um, or, or you know, as you say, curl scripts or whatever. But this is something that a, a normal user could have installed using the the GUI software manager. Um, and you know, there is and this is something that I've clashed with Popey and WinPress about quite a lot uh, in the past. The fact that who is responsible for these snaps? Um, if, if you are making it out of the box installable then are you not responsible for it and um now i know that you have this confinement but that didn't stop this cryptocurrency miner from running on people's systems uh for a little bit at least and you know i've seen people asking it does this mean that the the rest of the archive is potentially compromised and stuff and well no obviously not because the snap store is totally separate but the point i'm making is are snaps not quite ready for mainstream adoption in an LTS. It, was it too soon to put them in? No, it wasn't too soon. No, they're they're good. Confinement is not antivirus. Confinement is not anti-malware. The fact that somebody packaged a you know, valid piece of software, the fact that it did not claim to do what it did, or rather, it did something that it that wasn't immediately obvious to people uh, reading the description is a separate problem from you know the the fact that it could have done bad things on your system it was confined so it could never have for example stolen your ssh keys so i think actually that proves the validity of confinement that somebody could publish a piece of software which doesn't do exactly what you think it does but it's still safe in that it can't access your personal information. It can't get at your SSH keys and your sort of your private files. So confinement and snaps as a technology are absolutely valid. Um, and yeah, this is something that we need to look into a bit more and see if we can find a, a way of spotting this kind of thing in the future. 
But if you're going to let anyone upload stuff to the store and you're going to allow proprietary software, you know, software with no source code available, then is this not the inevitable result of that? Yeah, I guess it is inevitable that people will certainly try to do this kind of thing. And what we need to do is get the the framework in place that if they do this, then not only can we spot it and and undo it as quickly as possible, um, but though those applications are not able to run right on your system. I think that that proprietary software aspect of it is significant though because that has pissed a lot of people off the fact that you've got loads of proprietary software in a repo that you are sort of responsible for but sort of not really taking full responsibility for if you know what i mean and if if it was all uh you know if you only allowed free software open source or whatever and uh, people would submit their source code to it, which would then get packaged into a snap and then be delivered to people. I think people would be less pissed off about the whole thing. But that doesn't scale. Um, yeah, you can't have... Oh, how big would the team need to be to audit every piece of source code for every application that somebody wanted to submit to the store? Um, yeah, Android don't do this. iOS don't do this. Microsoft don't do this. Um, I appreciate Ubuntu's in a slightly different camp to those guys, but... The, the the scale of it is insurmountable. It, you just can't manually audit every piece of software that's going to be added to the store. So the the smart thing to do is automate that as much as possible and make sure the applications are confined. So if the audit misses something or somebody's clever and hides it away from the auditing, that it can't just uh, just run right on your machine. Yeah, but if you look at the the archive full of Debs there, I couldn't just put something in the archive could i you have to be trusted to do that you have to prove that you are trustworthy whereas i could put anything in the snap store and i think that's that's a big problem um you know that it's i know why it's being done like this to drive adoption and let you know have it kind of free to everyone but if you don't have a level of trust there and anyone can put anything in then i come back to it this is the inevitable result of that well, I mean, if you take most users, if they're really wanting to do something, they'll just go for it. Like if you have the latest, say, application and they really are desperate to try it, they will effectively try anything. If you tell them that, look, you really need to run this script, chmod, this file, execute it, and that'll get you this thing, they'll go ahead and they'll do it. It doesn't matter what it does. As long as they see that they get the output of that and they'll get that game, they're going to go for it no matter what, and they will think little of the damage that could be caused. That is true, actually. Uh, there's, uh, let's just say, some people I know who create audio that may or may not be about Linux who managed to find a, a website which was just, you know, just a, a directory listing with a, a deb of an audio um, uh, sort of production piece of software, and they've all installed it and are happily using it. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Some random Deb, no thank you very much. But the reality is that most people don't give a shit, do they? And I suppose that's why I'm a little bit more um, tentative about installing snaps, really. Um, I, I tend to do a search for it, and then if it is uh, developer snap crafters, then I tend to trust it more than developer random person I've never heard of. Um, but uh, you know, if, if you're starting to get to the point where you're installing stuff via the command line, I think that it's fair enough to have experimental stuff, but I just, I'm not saying that it's, it was too soon to put snaps in at all. I think fair enough, um, you know, have snap D there and, and have it via the command line, but to have it in the GUI and to be like really promoting that stuff. Um, that's, that's where I would be trying to, um, be careful about what stuff is actually seen uh, as available by, um, the users but then again i totally understand that you know the the whole thing about trying to make snaps like this universal thing that everyone's using and it's available on loads of different distros and they want to drive adoption so i suppose i'll stop uh, having a go at you uh, for now then will we've got plans to add verified developers to uh, to the gui and to the cli so you'll get that twitter blue tick oh, nice. um, verified mark which says that the person who uploaded that has been through a degree of vetting. Um, and that maybe that will address some of your concerns. Well, that would definitely address my concerns. Yeah. If, if we knew that this was a trusted developer and 
yeah and there was i mean i would almost sort of go the other way really and instead of having a blue tick i'd have a red cross for the ones <laughs> that weren't trusted and you know install at your own risk sort of thing and, and maybe even in the gui installer make that a separate thing that you have to tick you know i will include snaps from you know checkbox or whatever include snaps from untrusted developers you know i would go so far as to say untrusted rather than trusted and then that's going to drive people to become trusted and you know want to become trusted so uh, i don't know that's what i would do hmm. as my uh, uh nickels worth of free advice as americans would say all right well a quick mention to something that happened today that i haven't had much chance to read about and that is e-fail which is a vulnerability in how certain email clients handle um, encrypted emails with um, GPG and um, that sort of thing. And it's quite convoluted. You have to kind of intercept the emails and then send them back to the original person who sent it, and then they have to open it, and then you get emailed back the plain text of it. So people seem to be really freaking out about this, but. Um, I think you have to be actually encrypting your emails in the first place to worry about it, which I'm afraid to say I do not do. Do any of you encrypt your emails? I do. I accept them. Um, also, this is with um, Mime, S slash Mime. So it kind of can be done automatically if you kind of install the GNU PG um, add-ons for something like um, Mac Mail, which I think is one of the problem clients, as is Thunderbird. Oh, right. So you don't have to manually open it then? No, you can't. It's It's... It's the fact that you won't necessarily notice um, if Ah. you don't care that you're using HTML email, whereas I think a lot of people who maybe do care about it and use OpenPGP for this specific reason will keep to plain text, which um, obviates any problems. Yeah, why do people, uh, anyone (laughs) except for someone trying to fucking promote something, why would you use HTML in your emails? Just plain text, for fuck's sake, come on. (laughs) Come on, how do you, well... I mean, <clears throat> there's lots of problems with email in general, but um, I do. So I do accept open PGP um, emails and I do occasionally get some. And I think specifically if you're maybe a journalist um, or if you're, you know, if you're doing something and maybe don't understand the technology properly, then this could be a threat. Mm. And it's, I suppose, worthwhile being aware of it. Yeah, you'd feel you'd worry for people who might be using this for trying to uh, send stuff to the likes of, well, not not necessarily in a Snowden-esque type way, but people who might yeah. be civil rights lawyers or things like that, or maybe trying to get information from a questionable country of, you know, where people's lives might be in danger here. And uh, you'd have to wonder, you know, are... are dubious nation states making very good use of this exploit right now or have been making use of this Mm. so people could be in quite a lot of danger with this so yeah update your software and the problem is they'll have to update the protocol as well which is even more disturbing because it's not going to be an instant fix i mean switching out of hml is one of the things you have to do you have to update your software but you may very well have to kind of uh, you know, avoid certain p- packages because some of them are, are in in not a good state at the moment, um, and they will not be safe to use for the for the time being. The likes of Apple Mail being one of them. Yeah, I've had a few dealings with Mac Mail over the years, and it's always been shit. So I'm not surprised that it's vulnerable. Uh, but I need to read more about this before I have uh, any opinions, it seems. So, uh, yeah, we should probably move on. So uh, on to a bit of admin then. Um, first of all, thank you, everyone, for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It is very much appreciated. And if you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support, and there's a few ways there. And if you want to get in contact, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact. Uh, and new exciting news. I did promise new Patreon features. I'm still working on that. Um but there's other exciting news, Late Night Linux Extra. So that is a sister show to this, which is going to be on the other week. So we're going to keep doing this show every two weeks. Nothing is going to change, essentially. But there is an extra show called Late Night Linux Extra. You see what I did there? Which uh, is, well, the first one was just me uh, talking to Daniel Foray and Matthew Miller uh, from Elementary OS and Fedora, respectively. And the idea of the show is that it's just a chance for projects, distros, other FOSS projects to kind of have some airtime and just tell us what is going on with them. 
when there's new releases or important betas, that sort of thing. So as I said, this show, don't worry, nothing's happening with this show. It's just exactly the same. And if you're subscribed to the MP3 or OG of this show, then you're not going to get the new one. But there are two new RSS feeds. One of them is just the new show, and the other is this show and the new show. The new show is only MP3 because fuck OG, quite frankly. It's been nothing but a bore lake. I'm not going to get rid of OG for this show. We're going to keep it around for all of you hardcore OG fans. Um, don't try and suggest speaks. And you've had other codecs for your show, haven't you, Graham? Opus, yeah. But, I mean, it was no difficulty, the, the scripts on GitHub that I used to generate the uh, files. So was, I just use one command to generate them all. Uh, get you with scripting everything. I don't <laughs> trust scripts. I, I like to do it with audacity. I just curled the script from somewhere and ran it with sudo. <laughs> and in yeah, the yeah. darkness, bind them. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you uh, marked it as executable first, no doubt. Um, so iTunes-wise, uh, the new show and the both shows' feeds are on there. So that means that they'll be on all of the other podcast apps as well. Because it's funny how there's people who use these other apps on Android and they would like really swear that they hate iTunes or whatever. But the reality is in order to be listed on those other apps, all they do is just scrape iTunes. So if you're not on iTunes, you're not on any of the apps and it takes a few days to get on iTunes. So that's why if you were looking and it wasn't there, it wasn't there. So now it should be. Um, so yeah, late night Linux extra it's, it's all on just the same website, late night Um, and if you go to slash feeds, with an S, then they've got the four feeds there, the uh, MP3 and OG of the main show, and then the two MP3 feeds of the new show and both shows combined. Um, I think I explained that well enough. Uh, maybe I didn't. Anyway, so it's, it basically means if you want the show to become somewhat weekly, then it will be. But if you want to stay the same and you don't want anything to change, like me generally in everything in life, then <laughs> nothing will change. That's why I did it, because... I know that people don't like change. So anyway, there you go. Uh, right, so it says Gnome hate. So in talking about Ubuntu last week, I said that uh, Gnome was a catastrophe. <laughs> and people have written in, several people have written in via the various means on latenightlinux.com slash contact and said, I went too far and that, you know, it's not productive for me to be hating on Gnome and everything. Well, fuck you is all I can say. Gnome <laughs> is a catastrophe. Um, it's shit. I'm sorry. That's my feelings on it. But if you love it, then great. Knock yourself out. Have a great time. The point that I was trying to make was I do not understand how all the major distros are using this when there are so many other great options. I mean, you just have to look at them. XFCE. I love LXDE is great. LXQ is going to be great pretty soon. Um, you know, they're the kind of low end stuff. Okay. If you want something modern, Plasma is great. It's a bit too flashy out of the box for me, but it's really customizable. I love it. Even Cinnamon, which I understand is not brilliantly coded, is a good experience. Uh, Mate, of course, excellent. There's just so many options out there. And, you know, it's not like I'm just hating on things for the sake of it. Like I have tried all of these things. I've assessed them properly and I have ascertained and decided that Gnome is terrible. And they, it might be made by the nicest people in the world and I don't wish to offend them, but Gnome 2 was great. And then Gnome Shell started off just, just uh, we talked about abortions earlier. Well, it was an abortion. Now it's just a catastrophe because <laughs> it has improved slightly. But yeah, I'm sorry. I'm doubling down on this. I fucking hate Gnome. But I love choice more than any of the other things that I love. And if you choose to use it and you're happy to use it, then good on you. But you're going to get my honest opinions on this show. I'm sorry. I'm not offended. I mean, as a KD user, I've been through good times and bad times and then even worse times. So oh, I think we take the most kicking of everybody yeah. because we get no love from anyone. <laughs> 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 well, the thing about Plasma 5 is oh, that... Oh, yeah, yeah, Plasma 5, i.e. number 5. We've taken 1, 2, 3, 4 before you've all come along to give us a hug. <laughs> well, 3 was all right. It was just 4 that was the disaster. And even then, it's not as bad as Gnome Shell, as far as I'm concerned. And oh, I didn't even mention Pantheon, which is not really for me, but is, is all right. I didn't mention Ike's one, Budgie, which is all right. You know, take it or leave it. <laughs> 
Jesus, damn it with faint praise. Then. Well, damn it with faint praise, maybe, but you know, it's 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 fine. Uh, you know, whereas Gnome is just terrible, as far as I am concerned. It's only my personal opinion, and I'm not trying to, I don't know, make people not use it anymore. As I said, if you use it, great, but you know, I just hate it. So whatever. Anyway, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. They are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship their computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1804. I did say 16.04 last time, but that was outdated. And they have got a whole range of machines. They've got a load of laptops from fairly affordable stuff all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest NVIDIA graphics cards in them that are ideal for video editing and graphic design and machine learning and all sorts of things. Or they've got the more affordable stuff if you just need something for a bit of light browsing and email. And it's a company who cares about Linux. It's all they do. It's not some side project for them. It's not just some corner of their website. It's all they do. Um, And they've also got um, desktops, which are totally configurable, and even servers available. And I mentioned configurability. Almost everything is configurable from the CPUs, the amount of RAM, the storage, And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then do mention as a checkout, there's a little drop down. You can select late night Linux and they'll know that we sent you there. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, we've seen what is the near death, pretty much the death of Void Linux and Corora, both for fairly similar reasons. And that is that the lead dev has just sort of gone AWOL. the rest of the team have struggled for a bit and then just given up or at least um, almost admitted that they're giving up. And it, it just made me think that does this mean that there's not really any hope for small distros? Uh, you know, because if you look at quite a lot of the up and coming distros, they're very much led by one person who is the driving force behind them. I mean, you only have to look at Solus. Yes, Ike has got a good team around him, but he's such a driving force behind that distro that if he decided not to do it anymore, or God forbid, the the dreaded bus scenario or whatever, what would happen to it? Well, I think he's got the right mindset, though, with that. I was talking to him about this before, and he, from the outset, has set up the project in a way that he has sort of aimed for that in now before it actually happened in the fact that he's put teams in place and he's put mailing lists in place now how well he's done it i don't know i'm not involved enough to to be able to determine that but he has almost set out for the failure first well maybe failure is the wrong word but he's planned for the disaster enough that you don't have you know ike at solus as an email address you have maintainer of project at and you know i think when you set up projects in launchpad initially they were advising you you know set up a team even if you only have one person on the team set up a team for everything that way if you ever get bigger than one person you already have it set up and i think a lot of projects make that mistake of you know just emailing you know bob or whatever and that way you never sort of have a plan to expand therefore you've never got an ease of sharing the load and i think a lot maybe that's where the mistake is always made well that certainly seems to have been the mistake with void and corora because there's certain domains that they don't have access to um and you know it's it just part of the infrastructure is inaccessible to them and it just makes it a nightmare for them and but that's that's kind of a fairly easy technical problem to solve, isn't it? Relatively speaking. But that's not really what I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at is that um, there's always a driving force, isn't there? Um, You know, if you look at uh, Red Hat, that driving force is money. (laughs) If you look at Ubuntu, that driving force is Shuttleworth and money. Um, But if you look at the smaller distros, there's usually one person. And, you know, how can that person attract enough uh sort of attention and enough developers and enough users to get it to a point where 
people have enough faith in it to carry on. Because I look around at these smaller distros, and as attractive as they are, it just makes me think, well, Solus is the prime example of that. That, yes, it would carry on without Ike, but would it really be the same? And, and how long would it last? Do I really want to invest loads of time and effort into that distro as opposed to investing in a bigger distro like Fedora or Ubuntu or SUSE or Debian or whatever that is very unlikely to go away in, in the next five years? And so that brings me to the point of, can you ever have another big distro? Because you need to start small to become big. Or you need to have an eccentric billionaire backer, like uh, certain bosses of people on this show. <laughs> can we ever have another big distro? Or are we just sort of stuck with the main ones now? And then we'll have a few boutique ones that will kind of come around for a bit and hang around and maybe stick around for five or 10 years and then just disappear again. Depends on how you define it, but there's a middle ground, I think, between having the the billionaire backer and one man in his shed, and that is to build on the base of these giants who are going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Now, I don't know if you could count a um, you know a boutique distro as one which bases itself on Ubuntu or Fedora. Um, if you do, then I think you know that's where. That's that's got a better chance of longevity than uh, one where a small number of people are trying to do all the work. Oh well, definitely. But then look at Corora. That was based on Fedora, and that's gone away or is going away. I think though that this is its own feedback mechanism. In that a, a distro has to, even a boutique distro has to be has to differentiate itself enough from the popular distros to become popular and gain enough momentum to to carry on and perhaps get bigger and i think that's a really important part of what makes distros so diverse and is that they have to have that diversity to start with there has to be a reason whether it's 32-bit or maybe sixty-eight thousand running on an amiga you know you have to bring people together as something that differentiates itself enough to create its own momentum and I, I don't see why that won't happen in fact it makes people want to innovate and try new things or if they have an idea implement them and I think if you want that uh, level of uniqueness, then you need a self-appointed dictator in order to drive the project in that direction. Yeah, and they need to be wise enough to come up with some reasonable rules and an open enough system that it survives if, if they don't. Governance is the word, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. But it, it could be anything. It could just be the fact that everything is available and there's no secrets. But I mean, you look at things as simple as the domain name. Someone has to own that someone has to be responsible for it and either the person who's the driving force behind the distro has to trust someone else with the login or whatever or you know have a company in place or whatever these things are complicated and generally speaking the kind of people who are good at making software are not necessarily the kind of people who are good at organizing businesses and all of the boring paperwork they want to just get on with making a cool project yeah and i suppose there's a place there in what you're saying for something similar to what the fsf did or some kind of kind of um some third party that will curate and look after these projects and make sure that uh, the right people get access to things when they when things go wrong but who could that be do we need a new organization or could someone like mozilla maybe do that i think what you need is um, a framework to work in and community being what it is there must be people who are interested in your project who do have those skills. And uh, I think that perhaps project leaders need to be attracting those people in the early days as much as they do software developers. But isn't it about priorities early on? And yeah, you're, well, I suppose that's what you're saying. They need to change their priorities because people go into it with a very technical mindset just wanting to make the best distro or, I mean, this goes for software projects as well, not not necessarily just distros. But instead of just having this purely technical mindset, you're thinking they need to go into it with a more holistic, for want of a better word, attitude of uh, and, and mindset of trying to cover all their bases. But is that realistic on your own? I, I just don't think it is really. Not without a third party. Um, it's almost like we do need this this third party that um, you know have a free software project. We'll take care of all the rest of it and will take a small cut of any money that you make. Or maybe it could be charity-based or something. I don't know. 
Oh, I don't know. I think that um, in the same way that you go looking for somebody to design your logo and work on your website, uh, you know, it's all part of the overall brand and uh, you should have somebody in place to take care of that from the very beginning. Um, I don't think that it needs to be outsourced. I don't think it's that difficult to go on Google domains and set up a domain and, you know, configure Gmail and all that kind of thing. Um so, yeah, I think it just needs to be part and parcel of setting up a project. You need to to plan up front. Or when you see that, you know, it is gaining momentum and people are relying on your project and you care about it, I'm sure you'd feel normally inclined to protect it and make sure that it survives, you know, even if something goes wrong with your, you or your project management. I'm, I'm sure I would. If you remember back in the late 2000s, this happened to CentOS. So... CentOS was quite small when it started, but now they're part of Red Hat. And, you know, the guy who owned the domain name went missing for a while. And that project was looking at not owning their own domain and was looking very on shaky ground for quite a while um, until they eventually managed to get it back. So even big, fairly used projects can go very badly wrong there too. So... You know, just being a one-man shop, this can happen to anybody. So I don't know. There, There is a lot to be said for organizing this properly from the start. Um, And there's no guarantee, even if you are small or if you're big. I mean, I think it can happen to anybody. Uh, to take a non-distro example from a, it, the KDN Live, obviously it has to be a KDE example, but the KDN Live developer had faced... Uh, a serious amount of burnout at one point a few years back and he was looking at quitting and giving up um and he was coaxed back into it because he was trying to do everything on his own at the time and um he was he was coaxed back in and they they set up a structure around him and the, this project started getting more funding and they got shared workload and now they're doing all these meetups where they get the developers together every now and again and they've actually made that a really healthy project and that project has gone way better because it was starting to stagnate and it wasn't getting anywhere and there was a lot of bugs that they faced so i think it's really important to try and not let a project sort of choke up if you've what one one developer can easily face what might be insurmountable problems or financial issues or not being able to focus on you know it might seem like that this code's going nowhere i'm stuck i don't know how i'm going to get out of these problems and then it'll look like it's all closing in on you i think the important thing is that able to keep talking to people about stuff that's one of the hardest problems with a project i think is can look like it gets stuck very easily and you wonder if some of these projects maybe they looked like they were going nowhere from the outside or from the inside. Well, it's always a shame to see projects go away and I hope that Void and Corora can somehow pull it out of the bag and keep going on because I've always liked Corora. It's always been a pretty cool uh, derivative of Fedora. Um, so that will do it then for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks for a normal one and uh, all being well, I'll be back in a week with Late Night Linux Extra. Do check that out. But until then, I've been Joan. I've been Will. I've been Graham. <laughs> I've been Phelan. See you later. <laughs>